Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, July 7th, we are studying Judges chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 5. The gradual descent toward idolatry and apostasy continues in Israel as one tribe after another fails to drive out the inhabitants of the land as the Lord had commanded. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor John Busman. Pastor Busman serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks so much. It's always a privilege to bring the word of God to the listeners during these trying times. So, Pastor Bustman, we're here in the book of Judges, near the beginning, just in the middle of the first chapter. We saw an introduction to the book yesterday and, and saw maybe one of the high points of the book of Judges, honestly, before things really completely go off the rails, as we're going to start to see in today's text. So what do we need to know context-wise in the book of Judges itself, in all of Israel's history, going into our text for today? Right. Just to a reminder, really, I know that the Old Testament can sometimes seem to get jumbled up along the timeline, uh, but Moses has uh, led the people from bondage uh, from Egypt through the Red Sea uh, and then into the wilderness for the 40 years, and the people have entered into the Promised Land through the faithfulness of Joshua, and we're at the point where the tribes are really beginning to scatter into their own land, and they're responsible for uh, eliminating the rest of the people, that they may uh, completely inhabit this land that God has uh, promised to them. So that's really where we're at. We're seeing the tribes begin to settle in their lands, and we're getting the details of the last bit of the conquest. It's it's important to to keep that in mind where we are, particularly, I think we talked about this yesterday, that there's a, maybe a bit of a misconception that the book of Joshua is the completion of the conquest, that everything is set and done by the end of the book of Joshua, and, and that, that everything should be finished by the book of Judges, but it's not quite that way that there is a bit of overlap between these two books, and that by the end of Joshua, the conquest was not complete in the sense that there were still people, Canaanites, living in this land that the Lord was giving to his people. And so when we come to the book of Judges and we, we read, as we did yesterday and we will again today, that the tribes were still working on it, maybe that, that might be a bit confusing until we keep that context in mind, that there is some overlap between Joshua and Judges, and we're in that section still here today. Right, and that and that really helps in a way to get us in the, in the proper timeline for for where we are. Anytime you can kind of start with the previous book and and where you're where you're going, uh, that really helps us to connect. Because I know that the Old Testament can can get complicated for people, uh, especially as we begin the text today. We get a little 
example of that, uh, but anything that we can do to help uh, alleviate the difficulty of, of knowing when you are and where you are uh, certainly uh, helps us to, to further understand the text. For sure, for sure. Let's go ahead and, and start reading then. We're in Judges chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. I think I'll, I'll pause there. Pastor Busman, just for the, the sake of breaking it up a little bit, it's going to start to sound a bit familiar as we continue through this text. So we want to do a little work, I think, today with some basic geography of the promised land. Uh, we can't pinpoint necessarily all of these places particularly, but we can at least have a, a general picture in our minds. And so the author here of Judges is going to take us mostly tribe by tribe, telling us of the varying success of each tribe in driving out the inhabitants. We saw yesterday that Judah did a pretty good job. There was some difficulty. The people of Benjamin were not able to completely take Jerusalem. The house of Joseph didn't quite, and we're, we're going to be talking more about the house of Joseph today, but the house of Joseph yesterday we saw tried to imitate what happened uh, under Rahab, or, or with Rahab under Joshua, and they didn't quite get it then. And we're going to see a bit more today in terms of the failure of the people. So let's start with Manasseh. We can do, let's do some work with the geography and then maybe dig in a bit to the, the theology that we see there when it comes to their failure to drive out the inhabitants and why that's so important. Right, thanks. So, you know, the text does begin kind of in this, in this tedious manner, almost like a genealogy. And I'm, I'm really glad you stopped when you did because it kind of gets the repetitive nature like you're reading a genealogy. And th these tend to be the, the places where we either skip over to the next chapter or we just put the text down completely because there's a lot of mm. names that are difficult to pronounce, a lot of places that we may not know. Sometimes we can't differentiate a place from a name. Are we talking about a person or are we talking about a place? Mm. So, you know, we get it, even though we're, you know, we're pastors and we're, sometimes we're kind of looked at as the guys with, you know, with all the answers or who can say the right words, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's difficult. As you said, some of these places have not been found archaeologically, uh, even though uh, something like 93% or more of the places in the Bible mentioned after the flood have been found, which is a significant percentage, some of these places uh, have not, and, and, and it is difficult. But we do hear about uh, Manasseh first. It is the continuation of the house of Joseph. Joseph had two sons while he was in Egypt, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
And so Manasseh fails to drive out the inhabitants of Beit, uh, Shean, Megiddo, Ivlium. Uh, if you look at a map, which can be helpful for us, uh, especially a map that contains the ancient roads and how they went through the land, this would be extremely helpful for us because you'll see that these are not just random places in the land. Beit Shean, Megiddo, and Iblium are all places in the land, right in the really the, the northern central part of the land where major highways converge. So if you're going to be traveling from the north uh, down to Egypt, you're going to be picking up the highway in Megiddo. If you're coming from the east to come into the land, uh, you're going to be picking up the road that, that takes you through through Beit Shean. These cities were major, uh, major military strongholds. So if there were any places that you would want more than any of these places to control completely, Beit Shean, Ivlim, and Megiddo would be three of those. Uh, Dor is mentioned. Dor is on the coast. Uh, there's also a major highway running through there, but you could see that you have access to the to the Mediterranean Sea than to the west. So these aren't. It's not. It's not like there was this random place out in the woods somewhere that wasn't important to Manasseh and the people of of that tribe uh, necessarily. These are major, major places that they're just not taking over, uh, whether out of um, difficulty or whatever excuse. Ultimately, it is unfaithfulness that drives them uh, to, to leaving these places inhabited. Uh, we would also, you know, biblically, uh, we see the, the way of the wise and the way of the fool. This is definitely a, a foolish thing for for them to do, to leave inhabitants in these military strongholds. Hmm. I, I think knowing that about these villages that are mentioned here under Manasseh, that these are strategically important locations, is is very important to notice, because when the Lord gives his command to take these places completely and not leave inhabitants, and we'll we'll talk about that theologically in a second, but when he when he gives that command, he's not being capricious. He's not being fickle in doing it. He, it makes good sense to do this. If you are a, an objective observer, a student of military history, these are locations that you want control of outside of any divine wisdom, which the people of Israel do have. And again, we'll talk about that. But just on the from a very earthly perspective, these locations make sense. And, and I guess the, the point that I want to make, Pastor Busman, is that this is what God's Word does for us, is that it, it makes sense, that, that he's not sort of just making up rules for his own good. He's doing this for his people's good, and it 
it makes sense, not only from the theological perspective, which is important. I'm not trying to deny that. But to listen to God's word, he's giving you something that is good. He's, he's not giving you something that is bad. He's not doing it without reason. And it, it's just, it's always comforting, I think, when we see how his divine wisdom matches up with what seems to make good sense anyways, and you do see the foolishness, then doubly so, of the people of Israel failing to listen to him. So feel free to, to comment more on that, Pastor Busman, in general, and, and also start to take us then into why this is such a big deal for the people of Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Why is the Lord concerned with this in the first place? Right. So let, let me start there. This is often a place, especially uh, today, you know, with the world is, is kind of turned up, is upside down as it is. Uh, every, everyone has seemed to become a, an Internet or social media theologian and uh, will flip the texts of the scriptures uh, on top of themselves. And, and this is sometimes admittedly an uncomfortable thing to talk about and have to confront is what God is up to with his commands in Numbers, what is carried out in the book of Joshua, and what we're seeing here in the beginning of the book of Judges, that God wants his people to wipe out the inhabitants of the land. Now, uh, of course, this is beyond our text, but we'll see what happens as a result all the way through Judges uh, when they don't accomplish this. Uh, but this is the land that God has promised to his people. Uh, this is the land where Abraham uh, had been, Isaac had been, Jacob had been. They had, they had been all through the, the middle portion of the land and ultimately living down south in Beersheba uh, before they went to Egypt, right? They sold, the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph is uh, delivering the world uh, through the interpretation of his dreams of Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh brings uh, Joseph's family to Egypt to, to, have him, to have them dwell there. So they're going back into the land but God wants these these inhabitants gone uh, because he knows they're going to lead them into they're going to lead his very own people into idolatry they have their own gods they have their own ways and we we tend to forget what the scriptures say uh, the wages of sin is death uh, the inhabitants of the land weren't just random people who who popped up out of the ground somewhere uh, we we trace their history. This is where genealogies are are important as well. You trace their own lineage uh, back to Ishmael, back to uh, Esau. So these are people who uh, were going against the word, going against the promises of God, anyway. Uh, so it's not just that God picked these these poor, innocent people someplace and, and said, you know, murder them all, uh, as the world would have Christians believe God is commanding them to do. This is not what's going on here. God is uh, really purifying, ridding the land of the evil that was there for the sake of his, of his people. Um, but of course, uh, his people had 
had uh, had other plans as, as we kind of move into the 28th verse. Uh, we see their intentions, God's people's intentions. Uh, Israel is growing strong in the land, and they put the Canaanites to forced labor. So there's the end. They can build our cities. Uh, they can make us strongholds here. But what did they think was going to happen? Uh, they they should have remembered. I guess they have short-term memories. They should have remembered what the result of this forced labor is because they themselves had been in Egypt for 400 years subject to forced labor. Uh, more dangerously, the Canaanites had, living, uh, had lived in these places previously. They knew Beit Sheon. They knew Megiddo. They knew these different groups of people who passed through the land. It was only a matter of time before somebody passed through the land from the east or the west or the north or the south, and they said, hey, uh, we're being um, uh, sub- made subject to forced labor here. Why don't you give us a hand against these against these uh, people of Israel? Uh, so you can kind of see you can kind of see the sides aligning here for what's about to what's about to happen in the book. Yeah, the the matter of putting the Canaanites to forced labor, which happens here under Manasseh and, and a couple other tribes as well, do the same thing, is a a tragic irony. Given exactly what you said, that the people of Israel had come out of forced labor themselves. And and look look at the way that that ended for the people doing the forced labor for the Egyptians. Now, of course, the Israelites had the Lord on their side, but again, that fact should have made them all the more ready and willing to drive these inhabitants out of the land in the first place because of what the Lord had commanded them. And, and as you rightly said, the the Lord had commanded these things because He was giving this land to his people. He was ridding this land of the idolatry, of the false doctrine. And, and as you said, I think, I think you're right, that we do very much forget what the scriptures say about idolatry and false doctrine and sin when it comes to these matters. And, and we, we tend to, to look at the Canaanites as an, an innocent people, and I think the reason that we do that is because we would like to see ourselves as an innocent people, too. We would, we would rather not look at the idolatry of the Canaanites and think, there but for the grace of God, I would go. And, and their idolatry is what I would have apart from Christ. And, and it makes us uncomfortable to see the punishment for idolatry and sin upon someone else because we know that's what we deserve, and we'd rather not face that sort of that sort of law in, in our own lives. Rather, we just find some sort of easy way around it rather than be faced with the truth the way that the Lord would lead us, which is to speak his law, which would convict us and kill us. But then, of course, this is where we, we must always have the gospel. And I, I don't know if we're going to get to it so much in this text today that we've got before us, Pastor Busman, but we do need to, to say it, that the only way through this correctly, the only way to, to avoid this punishment of, of death for sinners and idolaters is to trust in the one who took that punishment upon himself, Jesus Christ, who is the one that this whole book is pointing to, as, as we will definitely see. Absolutely. As as we see examples like Rahab as they enter Jericho. So it's not, oh, you're living in the land, so you're just damned all of a sudden. Mm. Right? Uh, the the Gentiles uh begin to to come to faith too. Ultimately, right, we see in the New Testament 
um, you know, these these remnants of the Gentiles confessing their faith as as well. So uh, it's not just it's not just because these people lived there that all of a sudden that made them that made them damned. We we do see Gentiles who were living in the land coming to faith throughout as well. Yeah, that's that's right. There is always that purpose that the people of Israel have to speak the Lord's word to the nations around them. And just as when they went out of Egypt, even to go a little bit farther back, there were some Egyptians who went with them because those Egyptians had come to faith in the one true God, and so they went with Israel out of the out of Egypt and to the promised land. So so there are those within the promised land. Rahab is a, a wonderful example that do believe and join themselves to the people of Israel. That was what we, we saw yesterday at the end of, of Judges 1, 22 through 26, where the house of Joseph does something that sounds similar, but rather than the person that they, they, they recruit as a scout, rather than that person joining himself to Israel, he just goes off and does his own thing again, which is the opposite of what Rahab does. And so we, we see here how the, the people of Israel are, the way we talked about it yesterday, was, is gradually falling into this idolatry, this apostasy. It doesn't seem that it happens all in one fell swoop, but every time they, they show themselves unfaithful to the Lord's word, it becomes easier the next time until you have almost this domino effect as we've, as we've started to read. So, Pastor Preston, we've got a few minutes here before the break. We, we've talked about Manasseh, some of the geography there, and the, the key cities that they failed to take. What about, we've read already in verses 29 and 30, what about Ephraim and Zebulun? What are some of the, the things we need to know geographically in those places? Okay, sure. Ephraim, of course, is, is Joseph's second son, and he's dealing with the land uh, eliminating the people down toward where the Philistines, toward the Philistines, where they live down at what we would call uh, today the Gaza Strip. There are a couple, of, just, just a, another note, there are a couple of maps that that I encourage my people to kind of fold up and tuck away in their Bibles. One is a map of where the judges specifically were, and the other is a map of where the tribes finally wound up settling in the land. These are extremely helpful for you and and I believe can be easily accessed uh, through a, through an internet search. Uh, so those, those would be helpful for people who don't have uh, maps in their Bible. So Ephraim is, is moving toward the south, toward the land of the Philistines. Uh, Zebulun uh, is, is working with the central portion of the land. Those are the places mentioned uh, mentioned there with Kitron, Nahalol, and again, the, the Canaanites, these descendants of Noah's son, Ham, right? Sons of the sons of the curse, really. So uh, th- those are the areas of the land that, uh, that they're dealing with for us there. Right. And, and again, they didn't not a refrain that we're hearing over and over again. Zebulun also tried the the matter of putting some of these Canaanites subject to forced labor. And of course, that that's not going to work either. And we'll continue to see how that works out in Judges chapter one, the first part of Judges chapter two here on Sharper Iron. You are listening to us on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
In many ways, St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bel Air, Maryland is just like any other Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Church. They have worship services each Sunday and reach out to their community, but one thing they don't do is pay their electric bill. Hello, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And if you want to hear what St. Matthew actually did to eliminate their electric bill, just visit interesttime.org. That's interesttime.org. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. Each weekday on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of living boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 7th, and we are studying Judges chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 5. We've got Pastor John Busman with us. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, prior to the break, we've looked at verses 27 through 30. We've heard about Manasseh, Ephraim, the two tribes of Joseph. We've also heard about Zebulun, all of them have not driven out the Canaanites who lived in various cities, many of them in very strategic locations from a military perspective, and all of them against God's command to drive out the inhabitants completely. And so we're going to keep reading now in verse 31 of chapter 1 to see how other tribes fared. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Oxib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and in Sha'alabim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Sela and upward." That is the end of Judges 1. That was verses 31 through 36. So, Pastor Busman, I mean, as, as we keep reading here, as you said, there, there are a lot of similarities to the way we would approach perhaps a genealogy. It gets a bit repetitive. There are names that, that I'm sure you pronounce correctly and I don't. Uh, but, but there are some things that I think we can notice here in these verses, that, especially even as we compare them to the ones that we read on the other side of the break. One thing that stands out to me is in verse, where did it go? Verse 32, 
it says the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. And then in verse 33, when it's talking about Naphtali, it says they lived among the Canaanites. That's, that's backwards of the way that you might expect. It's not that the Canaanites were living among the people of Israel. Rather, with these two tribes, it says that the tribe was living among the Canaanites, as if it seems that they had even less success or less fortitude or ultimately less faithfulness when it came to driving out these inhabitants of the land. That, that's a, a great point. And as you, as you begin to go through the book, you really see that, again, it's the same uh, the same thing over and over and over. There's this, you know, rebellion, repression, repentance. There's this cycle of things, but every time it's given, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And you can even see in these short verses that, that are seemingly repetitive and often skipped over, you can see the descent uh, that, you know what, uh, the conquest wasn't as successful as it would have seemed in the beginning. These, it looks like now some of these tribes just kind of moved in and pushed people out of the way and just kind of set up shop that there was no success whatsoever, really. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the case for, uh, for, for these tribes up the Northern coast and uh, here around uh, the Sea of Galilee. See, now we're getting into some familiar territory because this is where we see our Lord Jesus uh, in his ministry, uh, you know, around around this area. But they're, 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 they failed ultimately uh, in unfaithfulness for for what uh, for what God has has said. There's no, you know, again. Uh, there's really not even a honeymoon period, as as we would say, for these people. Uh, they just kind of get in and, and all, already have already have failed. Mm, right, right. So, so Asher, Naphtali, these are, are farther north from where we were talking earlier. Then, in in verses thirty four through the end of the chapter, where you've got the people of Dan, that takes us a bit farther south again. It seems, looking at the map that I've got. Right, Dan. Dan's an interesting tribe too, because uh, Dan might be the most unfaithful of all. He, he, mm. the, that tribe takes the land that was given to them and says, "You know what? I don't, I don't want to be neighbors with the Philistines," and they take off completely, <laughs> completely to the north side of the land. That's why the tribe of Dan is in the south. But then there's a, a little city of Dan all the way to the north. They just, they just kind of throw their hands up and say, "I don't." I don't like what God has given me. I'm going to go do something else. So mm-hmm. just complete a, a summary of what of what has happened. God says do this, uh, but Israel really let the people of the land uh, call the shots. The entire conquest is, is already undone, already in the first chapter of Judges, and, and the rest of the book is going to be a fallout of that. The Canaanites not only persisting, uh, but they're holding the main trade routes on the land and the sea. Uh, so it's only a matter of time before uh, before we, well, it's one more verse <laughs> before we see what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. So uh, the summary of chapter one, then, is that you've you've got this overlap with the book of Joshua, where the people have been faithful under Joshua, 
And as we'll see later in chapter two, then a new generation arises that doesn't know the Lord and doesn't know what he's done. And that generation just completely falls into faithlessness. They, they do so gradually, it seems, but one tribe after another, gradually over and over again, they fail to do what the Lord has said. And, and so far, as we've seen here in Judges chapter one, we've not heard much from the Lord at this point. He's at the very beginning. He says to Judah, you go up first. But after that, it's really just been, here's what the people are doing. And as we've seen in our text for today, one tribe after another does not drive out the inhabitants as the Lord has told them until by the end of the chapter, there's just complete faithlessness. And so into that situation, now as Judges 2 begins, and this, this text really does help to summarize the theology of everything. Why is it so bad? Everything that we've just read, why is it so bad? That's what the Lord is going to come and speak to his people as Judges 2 begins. So we are in Judges 2, beginning at verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. That is the rest of our text for today. That was Judges 2, verses 1 through 5. Pastor Busman, just, just briefly, as the text here starts in 2, verse 1, we meet the angel of the Lord. And every time we see this figure in the Old Testament, it's probably worth just a, a brief mention at least who is the angel of the lord sure and we we see a, a difference in the language when the scriptures talk about an angel of the lord or the angel of the lord and uh, typically when we're speaking of the angel of the lord uh, we're speaking of the pre-incarnate christ so actually god himself uh uh, appearing, speaking to his to his people. The first instance of the angel of the Lord in the scriptures actually comes in Genesis chapter 16, and uh, interestingly, it's an appearance to to Hagar, hmm. and the response there is, uh, you know, I, I've, I've spoken with with God. Uh, which which tends to be the the reaction. So again, we're letting the scriptures really interpret the scriptures and uh, how the people are reacting to speaking to to seeing to hearing a message from the angel of the Lord uh, as God Himself. So the angel of the Lord uh, comes into the land, <laughs> follows, uh, not only goes before the people in the land, but uh, but comes in after them as well, and he announces the same thing to them. I brought you up from Egypt. Uh, you know, back in Exodus, Numbers, 
books like those, you know, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, by an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, I brought you out. So he's saying the same thing. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Well, who made that promise uh, but God himself? So again, the angel of the Lord, uh, God himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, and uh, giving the promise there. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, but let's get to how you've let's get to how you've kind of responded to that. Uh, you've you failed. You've not you've not obeyed. Uh, you've not obeyed my voice at all. And he asks the question, "What is this that you have done?" And uh, long ago, as as I was going through Judges, my brain went to yeah. It seems like we've heard that question before. What is this that you have done? And it's the it's the same question that was asked uh, in the garden after the fall. Uh, Eve eats the fruit. She gives some to her husband who was with her. They hear the sound of God uh, walking through the garden in the cool of the day, right? Here comes God. See how things are going. And he calls out to the man, where are you? And as they begin to uh, semi-confess what's happened, right? The woman you gave me, the serpent, these kinds of things. God asks the woman, what, what is this that you have done? So he's asking the same thing. So again, we can expect kind of the same results, the same curse really to be handed down to the people. Hmm. So how do, how do we see that, Pastor Busman, this, this parallel to Genesis 3? You've got the same question, and I mean, the same, the same sin, essentially, too. The Lord gave his word and said, this is what is good. He, he said, all of these trees that you can eat from, those are good. There's one that if you eat from it, you'll die. Don't do that because, you know, that's, that's bad for you. And, and here he's given his command prior to enter, entering the promised land. And, and recalling the study of the book of Exodus that we did, there are some definite themes in Exodus where you see the people going out of Egypt and into the promised land is in one sense a return to it's not a return to Eden, but it is a new creation. And there are certain themes that you see, particularly in the tabernacle, that you have that that theme that the Lord is bringing his people back into his presence like they once dwelt with him in Eden. And so it's not a return to Eden, but there are those, those same motifs. And so the command now in entering the land, look, here's what's good for you, and here is what's bad for you. Simply listen to my voice— so they've they've not done that yet again. They thought they knew better than God, which is the sin of Adam and Eve, among other things there in the garden. They thought they knew better than God, that he was withholding something good from them. And so the people repeat that sin. The Lord says, what is this that you have done? Just like he spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. And now there's going to be a similarity in the consequences of that sin. In the garden, the Lord spoke those consequences out of me. What does he say here to the people of Israel that's very similar, Pastor Busman? Right. So just the language in verse 3. Uh, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. So what does he say to Adam uh, when the creation, when the ground, cursed is the ground, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth. So the people 
will become like those thorns in the ground, except now they're going to be thorns literally in your sides. And then he goes on and says, their gods shall be a snare to you. So if we can jump forward then into Genesis chapter 4 with uh, the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Cain is upset very upset with his brother Abel, and God comes to him and said, uh, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. Uh, So here we have really the same thing happening. These these, uh, people shall be thorns in your side, and their gods are, are, are crouching at your door waiting to overcome you and they indeed will as we'll see through the through the rest of the book so an echo of genesis chapter 3 here especially moving into chapter 4 more than that you know we see that god is not really saying anything different he's not changing his mind over the course of time he's giving them the same command uh, and the same promise. He's he's delivering on his word, and the people fail uh, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It, it is a it is a striking parallel to see there. The you know the other thing that that is very important to notice, I think, in the Lord's words, the angel of the Lord's words to his people, is that. I mean, he starts just reminding them of everything that he's done for them and all of the promises that he's made for them, which just makes the situation here in the, among the people of Israel all the more tragic. The Lord is the one who brought his people out of slavery from Egypt. He's the one that has brought them to this wonderful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's the one who's made a covenant that he won't break, and he's, he's given them the true worship of him. And he's delivered them from all these false gods. He delivered them from the false gods of Egypt. And now he's taking them into a land where he's going to separate them from all the idolatry that's there. And so all of that goodness that the Lord has given leads to this just terribly tragic and really inexplicable rebellion on the part of the people of Israel. When the Lord has given you all of this, why would you choose that one thing that he has told you is bad for you and fail to drive out the people of Israel? And there, too, is a parallel with Genesis 3, I think, that Adam and Eve are in the middle of a garden, and literally every tree around them is good for fruit for food except for the one in the middle. And in that bounty of food that is good for them, they go to that one that isn't good for them. And the people of Israel here too, in the bounty of everything that the Lord has given, choose what is evil for them. And it's just, just looking at it from the outside, it's completely inexplicable. It makes no sense. But that's that's what sin does. Sin just doesn't make sense. It, it looks at what God has said is evil and says, that's what I want. And, and I, I mean, I say that to my own shame, because I know how often I make that choice for myself still today. And it's just, it's just terribly tragic to see it here and then to recognize it in my own life as well. Right. Again, why, why these texts are often uncomfortable as, as we 
said before, because it does cause us to to look at our own uh, unfaithfulness. You know, it, it's easy to say, oh, those people back then didn't drive out those people, but but at the at the root of it, it's it's a rebellion against the Word of God, and ultimately that's what that's what all sin is, I, idolatry. Uh, you know, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We should fear and love God so that, so that, so that. And and we fail. Uh, we, we do. But, you know, thank God that, that Judges doesn't end with the, te- with the verse that we have to end on today, but it goes forward and we continue to see God's faithfulness to his people. Uh, you know, thank God we have a God as we do uh, who is – slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God who doesn't throw up his hands in the air and say, okay, enough's enough. Uh, I've had it with you. But he instead instead uh, comes to his people, calls to his people, uh, even as we see Jesus looking over Jerusalem, weeping over the city. Hey, how often I have called, how often would I have gathered you, but you would not, leading him to to weep. Over this, and we, we kind of see the weeping connection here in, in Baca and in, in Bokim with with these texts. But we do have a God who constantly pursues us, constantly calls out to us, lest we uh, lest we die the eternal death, uh, which He does not want for anyone. That that's a I mean that too is a parallel to Genesis chapter three when when Adam and Eve sin the Lord's first words to them are where are you he goes looking for them the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost Jesus says and we see that from the very beginning after his people have sinned that's what the Lord is doing he goes looking for them and here too in Judges chapter 2 how easy it would have been for the Lord observing his people in their failure to conquer the promised land as he had given it to them it would have been very easy for him to just forsake them and leave them to their own devices and let them perish not only physically but eternally but instead he goes he was looking for them and and here particular in Judges chapter 2 at the very beginning it says the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And we'll talk more about Bochim, I think, in, in a second. You mentioned already it's connected to the word of, of weeping. But the mention of the name uh, Gilgal here, I think, is significant, too. In Joshua chapter 5, Gilgal is the place where before they conquer Jericho and enter into the promised land, Gilgal is the place where the people are circumcised after not being circumcised in the wilderness. It's also the place where they keep the Passover. And so the Lord goes from this place of great faithfulness on the part of his people, where, where I mean, there, there you've got that generation that's just being very faithful, Joshua and those with him. And, and yet, now that he's looking upon this generation that has fallen far, far from that, what does he do? He still goes looking for them at this place of, of unfaithfulness at this point. He still goes there to look for his people. And so he goes to this place. They, it's already called Bochim in verse 1. And then we're told that it's named that after we're, we're told that they, they've lifted up their voices, they wept. So Pastor Bestman, given the, the name of the place and what the people do in reaction, it seems that there is repentance on their part by the end of this text. Right. And, and, and again, the cycle of, of judges, you get to the end of a, of a judge and there is, there's repentance and there's, 
release and there's rest and and every time you want to say finally maybe maybe they've got it together now and <laughs> and it kind of might cause us as we as we end this section to to say okay they they messed up they didn't do this and and you could kind of say okay end of the chapter now let's go back and revisit Manasseh. Let's go back and revisit Ephraim. Let's go back and visit Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali and Dan. And let's see now how they finish their conquest. Now that God has given them really a fresh start and a, and a redo, but that's unfortunately not the way the text goes. Uh, the text goes the way of a generation arising who did not know what God had done, like a generation or a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph in Exodus chapter 1. So it, it's really the downfall. But again, God pursuing his people. Now at this point, God raising up judges, right? God mm. sending somebody to call out to his people, not only to call out to his people, but to lead them militarily against uh, somebody who was uh, oppressing them. So we really see the unfaithfulness, the drastic, drastic unfaithfulness of the people, but the faithfulness of God, the the promise, right? Right there in uh, chapter 2, uh, where was it? Verse 1, right there at the end of, of chapter 2, verse 1, where God has said, I will never break my covenant. I will never break it. Not I will never break it, but I've kind of changed my mind. I didn't know this was coming. No, I will never break my covenant with you. He is who he is. Uh, he has led them up out of Egypt, delivered them into the promised land, and he's going to continue to pursue them, continue to proclaim his word, continue to give them hope uh, for the future. Pastor Bus, we have just under three minutes here. The the text that we've got today concludes that the Israelites sacrificed there to the Lord in this this repentance for a time. And I think the mention of sacrifice here is a good way for us to connect all of this to Christ, who who is the one that fulfills this promise, I will never break my covenant with you. Anytime we see the Old Testament sacrifices, we need to think of the once-for-all final sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So so take that and, and help us wrap things up and point this to Christ for us this morning. Right, again, so we, we see these people uh, spin into, into unfaithfulness. Ultimately, again, it will be God who comes, the ultimate promise fulfiller, the Messiah, who uh, would come, and it would not be uh, the people who would sacrifice, but uh, the Father himself who would uh, sacrifice his own uh, Son, Jesus, for us. He would be the one who would uh, and will ultimately complete the con conquest, who will wipe away all enemies, not the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Perizzites, but sin, death, and the devil, he uh, has wiped out through his body, through his blood, who will ultimately be uh, be eliminated uh, at the last day that we might enter into a good land, a uh, cleansed land, uh, the land promised to us, the land of the new creation, uh, right? We have this text today that uh, might be a little confusing with names and places and all of this, but we have a text that 
really leaves us with the Canaanites persisting in the land and calling the shots. Uh, But we, even in our day, remember and we cling to the Word of God, uh, because in the end, only will He persist in the land and will freely give us His good gifts uh, as we are His own dear children. Pastor John Bussman is the pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama, helping us this morning with Judges 1, verse 27 through 2, verse 5. Pastor Bussman, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much. Peace be with all of you. Sin makes no sense. What the people of Israel did in their faithlessness to the Lord simply didn't make sense. Look at all the good that he had given, and yet they rebelled. Thanks be to God that in our sin, that doesn't make sense. He pursues us. He comes after us with his word, calling us to repentance so that in Jesus Christ, the deliverer, we receive life, forgiveness, and salvation now and for all eternity. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Tim the Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.